This is a little taller for the tall guys now. All right. Well, this week we start a series, a sermon series called The Lost Arts. And I will explain. We're going to have this sermon series going for the next eight weeks. The lost arts are the behaviors that Jesus himself displayed when he was on earth carrying out his mission. So we often talk about following Jesus. We talk about that with our character and and other ways. But in this case, we're going to try to follow Jesus in behaving in the world where we live, work, and play like Jesus behaved. We're going to try to learn these arts as a congregation so that we can be people on the mission of God. Okay, so these are the arts we'll be going through. You'll be hearing about noticing, listening, praying, welcoming, asking questions over the next eight weeks. And we'll be kind of trying to get you up and going on these arts. We're going to be practicing these together. You may even have some assignments that you get uh, when you leave church on Sunday morning. Wouldn't that be exciting? That's exciting. All right, good. Well, let's pray. I'm going to launch us into this this morning. Let's pray together. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to follow our king, follow our leader by being willing to be sent like he was sent. We pray this morning, Lord, that you'd begin to speak into our hearts and lives the, the call to be your ambassadors, your missionaries in the world in which we live. Um, thank you, God, for your spirit's uh, presence here. We pray you would translate, Lord, these words of yours for your people. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So the book of Genesis opens with this idea that the Spirit of God is hovering, and he uses this Hebrew word, it's hovering over the tohu vavohu. That word means emptiness, formlessness, void, meaninglessness, chaos. It says in Genesis that the Spirit of God hovers over the tohu vavohu and speaks to it, And out comes form, meaning, purpose, fullness, wholeness, what the Hebrews call shalom. And then, of course, you know the story, right? We know how long after it was, but Genesis 3 tells us that the enemy re-enters the shalom and he reintroduces the tohu vavohu, the chaos, emptiness, meaninglessness, void, right? And the world goes south Pretty quickly. And basically, the enemy aims his assault primarily at God's image bearers. He wants people to believe that God is not good, that God does not love them, that God is not with them, that God is not powerful enough to deal with their life situation and struggles. And the enemy has taken prisoners. I've actually met some of them. You probably have too. At camp this summer, I met several of the enemy's prisoners, speaking to high school kids at camps, both in Colorado and Wisconsin. I sat across the table from Lindsay, who told me that she was in difficult times because her dad had announced that he was leaving the family to pursue his homosexual lifestyle. Another young man sat across the table from me, and he told me about his mom leaving his dad, getting involved with a drug addict, Messing up his life, his family's life, on and on the story went. He sat across the table from me and he said, how can I believe in a loving God who's with me that you're talking about from the stage when my situation, my life, my family is a total mess? There's prisoners all around us of the enemy. He has locked people in chaos to make them believe that God really doesn't care. That God has left them, that he's gone. Now it'd be easy to think and believe 
that God is surprised by this, that he sits up in heaven wringing his hands going, oh boy, oh boy, I created the world and it's all gone south. But that's not what the Bible says. Ephesians chapter one, in fact, in the message says this, long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. He thought of everything, provided for everything we could possibly need, letting us in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him, everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet Earth. So basically, before God ever created the world, he already had a plan to redeem the world. Before God ever introduced shalom into the world, he already had a plan to restore shalom to the world. And it was all centered in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the first missionary ever sent by God to deal with the chaos of the world. You understand this, right? He's the first one that ever said, yes, I will go, I will enter the chaos, I will love those people that are in prison there, and I will show them the way out. Jesus willingly came from heaven, and he entered the chaos, and he became the first one ever sent. Right? And he came. And what did he come to do? Well, it says in Isaiah, he came to banish the brokenhearted, He came to make the blind see, the lame walk, proclaim freedom for the prisoners, release the oppressed, and rebuild the ancient places long devastated by the enemy. And when Jesus comes, he gets right to work. If you've read the Gospels, he goes through the towns and villages of Palestine, healing, touching people that no one else would touch, talking to people that everybody else had written off, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And because of his work, we sit here today in church, Christ in us, redeemed, reconciled, right? Made new. Second Corinthians 5.17 says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. Now, if you watch most church people live their lives, you would think that was the end of the story. Seriously. It's as if God saved us and now we get to sit here together in our safe little building and do our church stuff together. You know what I'm saying? Like, here's the question you gotta ask yourself. If God just wanted to save you and then evacuate you from planet Earth, then why did he leave you here for so long? I mean, I was 12 when I got to know Jesus. I'm 58 now. So God's left me around Earth for 46 years. I think that's the math. Why did he leave me here for all this time? He must have had something for me to do. He must have something for you to do. He must have called us for more than just being good church people together. And actually in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, it says this. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. That word ambassador, you know what that means, right? We're like Christ's representatives. We're like the very presence of Christ in the world. If people want to know what Christ is like, they just watch us. We are Christ's missionaries and God is making his appeal to the world through us, right? That things can get better. That shalom can be reintroduced to your life. That you don't have to live in chaos. You can actually have wholeness, fullness, purpose. 
So the sent one, the first one ever sent by God, is now the sender. He says in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So we're his plan. We're the presence of Christ in the world. The spirit of God has been planted inside of us and we have answers to things that people out there in the world are searching for. We know the way back to the wholeness, fullness, shalom, connection with God that everybody longs for. Now, to be honest, as I watch the church, it kind of reminds me of my dining room table at night for dinner. So years ago, I, actually this week, I was 32 years married to my wife, Pam. So we just celebrated our anniversary this past week. Thank you, thank you. Um, we, met at, we met at Wheaton College. Um, I was a hockey player. She was a hockey fan. And so we hung out together and eventually got married. And so for 32 years, you know, we've been doing this. And when I first met this woman, I realized, man, she's an Italian, Irish, English woman. So my kids are mutts now, right? There's not the purebred Dutchman anymore. But she can cook like crazy. I mean, she can really cook. So I made a deal with her. I said, look, honey, if you cook the meals, I will clean up the dishes the rest of our marriage. So for nine years, that was just me and her doing this. Well, of course, nine years in, and now at this present time, a whole new part of the equation has been introduced. I got a 17-year-old, 19-year-old, 21-year-old, 23-year-old. So my dinner table looks like this on a given night. We'll finish dinner. My wife will get up. She'll say, well, kids, your dad's going to clean up the dishes. It would be nice if somebody would help him. You know what happens next, right? 23-year-old starts it usually. He's like, well, dad, I'll catch you tomorrow. I got to go to work. 21-year-old, dad, I got a lot of homework for school. I got to get going. The 19-year-old, I got soccer practice, dad. I'll get you some other time. My 17-year-old, I got a PS4 game pause in the basement, dad. When that's done, I'll come up and help you out. I'm standing there by myself, cleaning the dishes up. Now, I had no idea I was experiencing a psychological phenomena that psychologists call the bystander effect. It basically means the more people you have in a room, the less likely anyone is to individually take responsibility for what needs to get done. They actually train emergency personnel against this thing. So when you come on the scene of an accident, someone's laying on the ground, you don't yell out, somebody call an ambulance. Because everybody will figure somebody will. You point to somebody and say, you, get your phone out and call an ambulance, and then it'll happen. Now, if we're honest, folks, we have a huge bystander effect going on in church. We gather on Sunday morning, we listened to the preacher preach. We last, last weekend, Pastor Greg said, this is about doing something. Everyone shook their head. Everyone gave an amen. Yeah, let's go do something. And then we all got up and figured probably somebody will do something, right? I'm sure somebody will. I mean, at least, at least Pastor Greg will do something. He's paid for this for kind of loud, right? I mean, Klein, he's the director of outreach. He must be doing all the outreach, right? So Klein's running around outreach, and meanwhile, we're just hanging out watching him, cheering him on. No, guys, this is not the way it works. We've got a bystander problem. We, we just don't, we're not really engaged. We don't really feel like the Lord is calling us. Now, you've got to ask yourself, why are people bystanding so much? Well, let's just be honest. Let's just be honest. Let's be honest. I can be honest with myself. You know, I don't really know if I care about my neighbors that much. I, mean, I, I live in a neighborhood, and a bunch of the people in the neighborhood are totally lost. They don't know Jesus. I just don't really know if I care about them enough to tell them about Jesus. It's going to take up my time. It's going to be inconvenient. It's going to, it's going to mess up my schedule. I might have to talk to some weird guy I don't really know. You know what I'm saying? Let's just be honest. We don't really care. 
And then secondly, let's be a little easier on ourselves. We don't really know what to do. If I were to tell you, go make a disciple, most of you would say, okay, where do I start? How do I begin? I have no idea how to make a disciple. Right? And then thirdly, we think that the church is here to sort of protect us from the world as if this is like our fortress to stay inside to keep ourselves safe from all that evil junk going out there. Alan Hirsch said that the church doesn't have a mission. The mission of God has a church. So the church was actually formed to get on the mission of God. We're confused. We think the church is here just for us. Howard Snyder, the Asbury Theological Seminary guy, says this, church people think about how to get people into the church. Kingdom people think about how to get the church into the world. Church people worry that the world may change the church. Kingdom people work to see the church change the world. So the real question this morning is, well, how in the world do you become an ambassador for Christ? What's it look like? How do you begin? Well, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 gives us a methodology, a simple methodology for becoming an ambassador of Christ. And we're going to walk through that this morning together. So it begins with our eyes, 2 Corinthians 5, 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Now, I don't know about you, but my normal narrative in my car as I'm driving along what the people around me is, I can't believe we have driver's ed in this country. Do we really have driver's ed in this country? I'm usually annoyed at the people next to me. I I walk in the Dunkin' Donuts and the guy in front of me is taking too long to order his coffee and I'm just annoyed by the guy. I just want to get him out of my way. I go to the grocery store and I'm trying to find the fastest lane to get through, right? As fast as I can so I can get get out of there. I don't want to talk to anybody. But wait a minute. What if we're not supposed to look at people from a worldly point of view? What if we're supposed to see people differently as people that follow Jesus? What if when we look at people, instead of being annoyed by them and instead of judging them and instead of looking down on them, we're supposed to actually look at them differently? How did Jesus see people? Well, Matthew chapter nine. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus saw these harassed and helpless sheep who were living in chaos the enemy had sown in their lives Instead of looking down at them and judging them and being annoyed by them, his guts ached for them. That's the Greek word. The Greek word actually means his guts churned with compassion for these people. He literally got a stomach ache because he wanted to do something about their situation. We need to start to see people in the way Jesus saw people. Think about it. Jesus went along the roads of Palestine. He saw a blind guy. He didn't just keep going. He got interrupted and went over there and talked with him. He's going through Jericho. There's crowds all around him. Zacchaeus is in a tree. He sees him. He goes to his house. Matthew is sitting at a tax collector's booth. I love this. It says in Matthew, Jesus saw a man sitting at a tax collector. He didn't see a tax collector. He didn't see a sinner. He saw a man. How do we look at people? How do we see them? There are lots of people in our culture who never get seen, who nobody even notices, who no one ever sees. They're crying out to be noticed, to be loved, to be cared about enough that someone would see them. The church of Jesus, the ambassadors of Christ, are supposed to be those of the people that see people with the eyes of Jesus. So my son Joseph taught me about this 
years ago. He's 17 now, when he was eight years old, the second grader. He came home from school one day, and he said, Dad, can we help this kid Eric in my class? I said, Joe, sure, tell me about him. He said, well, Dad, he, he just got here. This is February in Chicago. He just got here. He's from Africa. And he comes to school in the same outfit every day. He comes in flip-flops, shorts, and a short sleeve shirt. And when we go out to recess, he looks really cold. That's a pretty good scene. So I said, Joe, I'd love to help Eric. Why don't we go meet him? So we went after school, met Eric, walked him home to his house, met his parents. They had just moved here from the Congo, where they had lived in a refugee camp for 10 years. 10 years in a refugee camp waiting for legal immigration to the United States. 10 years of having three children in a home made out of cardboard boxes with a roof that was a plastic tarp that I dragged my leaves from my yard in. This was his roof. 10 years. So I met this family, John Vierre, Josephina, Eric and his brother Moise and his sister Cynthia, and we got to get them snow pants and boots and gloves and coats, and they became part of our church family. They couldn't speak much English. They spoke mostly Swahili. A lot of times when we see people that speak a different language, we look at them like they're dumb, don't we? Javier, the dad, when I fell off the ladder a few weeks ago, I've known this guy for 10 years now, guess who showed up in my house the next day? He came in my kitchen, he got on his knees in the middle of my kitchen, and in Swahili, he laid his hands on me and prayed over me for who knows how long. I had no idea what he was talking about. It didn't matter because I knew that he was praying for me because that's what God had told him to do. And he got up and he shook my hand and said, he said, Daddy, he calls me Daddy. Daddy, God likes you. You're going to be good. <laughs> I said, Thank you, John Pierre. Thank you. <laughs> okay? So this is, what, this is what happens when we start to see people. It opens our eyes for the ministry that Jesus might have right around us. You and I see people every day of the week. Most of the time we ignore them. What if we actually started to pay attention? What if we started to ask ourselves, huh, I wonder if God wants me to enter into something with that person that's right in front of me. That's where it begins, being ambassador of Christ. Now, it continues, starts with your eyes, continues with our hands and our feet. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That word ministry in the Greek, it means Like, it's the action of like waiting on tables, demonstrating love through tangible acts of service toward another. It's picking up your towel and washing people's feet, okay? So basically, when you're trying to be an ambassador of Christ, this minister of reconciliation, we should should talk about that word. Reconciliation means you're bringing people back together. They've been separated because of their sin and chaos from their God. You're bringing people back together with their God and reconnecting them with their God. That's reconciliation. Now, we often think that that happens first with a, a word, a message, an evangelistic you know, appeal. No, it starts with your hands and feet. Because once you see people, you start to, to meet their needs, right, with your hands and feet. You get out there and you serve them. You, you, you wait on them. You, you show them that God still loves them. If the enemy has sold the lie in the world that God has left people, he's not powerful enough to take care of them, he's no longer present with them, we get to be the people that assure people that that's not true. We get to come and say, hey, we want you to know God has not left you. He's still here. He's with you. We get to live compelling lives. 
The early church, it's amazing when you study the early church, they had no screens, no buildings, no sound systems, no marketing campaigns, no online websites. But the, Jew, the Jewish professor of history at COD told me, who's not even a Christian, says, I can't explain the movement, the impact, the explosion of Christianity from 25 AD to 200 AD. 25 million people became Christians. I can't explain it. You know why? I can. Because the early church lived compellingly. They were so compelling that people were drawn to Jesus. They didn't need marketing campaigns. They just lived compellingly. And people were drawn to this whole thing. Now, when I planted a church uh, 12 years ago in Wheaton, we, just, we made a decision to take the second Sunday of the month on a Sunday morning and instead of coming to church and going to church, instead of hearing a sermon, we were going to be the church and give the sermon with our lives. This is crazy. So we actually canceled the worship service and we gathered at the school and we headed out into the community to serve the world and let people know that God was still with them. He still loved them. This became a thing in our church and people started to know about it and the school counselor at the public school came to us and said, hey, I know what you're doing. You can't talk about Jesus with these people, but can I give you some names of people that need to be loved like you're doing, loving people? I said, that'd be great. So she brought me the name of Jerry. Jerry, his wife had just died of cancer a few months before. He had gone through a stroke from the stress of it all and had been debilitated. He was actually disabled. He was trying to raise his first grade son who was going to the school where we met. We went and got to know Jerry. We went with 55 people on a Sunday morning when everybody else was in church and we offered ourselves as a living sacrifice. That was our spiritual act of worship. We landscaped Jerry's yard. We painted his house. We cleaned his inside of his house. We fixed his car. And Jerry became part of our church family and got to know Jesus because he was so compelled by the love he was being shown by this church. He couldn't believe it. And you know what? All the neighbors who weren't in church that Sunday morning, when they saw us in Jerry's yard, they came out of their houses and joined us and serving Jerry. And they actually gave money. They were writing checks to me saying, we'll pay for the stuff. We'll pay for the supplies. So all the non-Christians that were sitting home, not in church, they got involved. Now, I'm not suggesting we cancel church, although I'd, I'd be up for it. Um, Pastor Greg, I said, you know, I know so. Um, but, but, but here's what I'm suggesting, folks. Where people you're seeing that are in front of you every week where does God need you to step in with your hands and feet and actually do something compelling for them? Who needs to be loved like Jerry? Who's living right in your neighborhood? Who's at work, just needs someone to step alongside them and just wash their feet, serve them, show them that God is still with them, that God still loves them? You know, the, the Russians, when they took over, uh, well, the, the communists, when they took over Russia in 1917, um, they vigorously persecuted the church, but they did not make Christianity illegal, okay? Instead, they made it illegal for Christians to do good works. They said that from now on, the government will feed the hungry, the government will take care of the widows, we'll take care of the poor, we'll clothe the naked, that'll be the government's job. And 80 years later, the church in Russia was completely irrelevant, Author Eric Swanson says this, take away service and you take away the church's power, influence, and evangelistic effectiveness. The power of the gospel is combining its life-changing message 
with selfless service. To be honest, the church continues to turn more and more things over to the government of the United States to take care of people's needs. The more we do that, the more irrelevant we become. It's time for us to engage, church, and the people's needs around us, to see them and then be willing to say, I'm gonna use my hands and my feet. You can come get some of us, we'll come help you. We're gonna start to serve people, love them, connect with them, because they need to know that God has not left them, that he's still with them. So it starts with your eyes, it moves your hands and feet, and then Paul says this, and includes a message. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20, he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Now it's interesting when you start talking about the message of the Christian faith with Christians, immediately people start to freeze up, right? You, you, you felt it, didn't you? Deep inside there was this moment of anxiety like, oh, you're kidding me. I gotta say something now? I can serve with my hands, I can see people with my eyes, but I gotta say something now? Well, think about it. You're evangelists for a lot of things, people. I didn't even know what a Yeti cup was till three months ago when I was having coffee with a bunch of guys and they were telling me about a Yeti cup and how it's amazing qualities of keeping coffee warm all day long. You put your coffee in there and eight hours later, it's still warm, it's amazing. So I went and got myself a Yeti cup. People tell me about movies I should go watch or how about that mango salsa? Have you tried that mango salsa? Now that's something, huh? You guys know what I'm talking about? We get excited about a lot of things and we're evangelists for them. We tell people about them and, and word of mouth spreads them and literally they become viral. When it comes to Jesus, I don't know, either we're just not that excited or we're just really afraid that we're gonna mess it up. We're not gonna say it right. And we've been trained to sort of picture evangelism in all the wrong ways. So look, let me show you some of the pictures you have in your mind about evangelism. Big church buildings with one single speaker speaking from the front, inviting people to know Jesus, right? This is how it works, doesn't it? When I worked at Faith Church in Dyer, Indiana, with thousands of people, we would tell people, bring your friends to church and we will tell them about Jesus. What did that do? It basically said, everybody out there, you can't do it, we'll do it for you. Just get them to church. We're gonna make it easy. Well, what if that's not the way God intended it to be? What if he actually had something for you to say? What if he could actually, what if we could teach you a way to do this in a way that would not be so scary and crazy, right? Um, go to this next one. Here's, here's some other pictures we have of evangelism in our heads. The weird guy in the corner with the microphone and sign, right? I love that church sign, Happy New Year, Turn or Burn. <laughs> That's going to win a lot of people to Jesus, right? We also have the picture that of a, you know, pushing our way into someone's house and, and forcing the gospel on them, right? Uh, we also have the idea that we're supposed to get in the, our elevator speech down and when we're in the elevator with a, someone from the dark side, we gotta quickly get it out, right, before the doors close and open again, right? These are all weird pictures in our minds. What if, what if sharing this message is as simple as walking alongside people in relationship and because we are serving them and seeing them differently and loving them, they begin to become curious about the gospel that we believe and understand, about this Jesus. What if our lives are so compelling that they just can't help but ask us about these compelling lives? What if it's as simple as having a relationship and a conversation? So my neighbors on the east side of my house, their names are George and Joanne. Uh, Joanne used to live there by herself. When I first moved in, it was Joanne and her daughter, Maggie, 
And uh, she told me over the fence that her husband had gotten cancer. She was actually going to divorce him, she said. But when he got cancer and he was going to die, she decided to take care of him until he was done. And he died. So when we moved into our house, Joanne and her daughter Maggie lived right next door. Maggie went to school with my kids. We would have conversations over the fence. Then eventually this guy George moved in. So I talked to George over the fence. George told me he was a recovering Catholic. Um, Joanne told me that she was a Jewish Catholic, which I didn't quite understand, but it was okay. So over the years, Pam and I have just kind of befriended George and Joanne. We have been in the hospital room with Joanne when she had surgery. We have walked with George through his heart surgery. We have made sure that they're helped them with their yard and their dog, and we've had them over for house for our dinner, and we've gotten to know these people. And it's crazy because, uh, I don't know, a few years ago, they asked me if I would do their wedding over the fence. They said, we're going to get married. Would you do our wedding? I said, yeah, I'd be honored to. So we went down to George's mom's house in Chicago, in her apartment. We sat there with George and his wife and her caretaker and his daughter. And I had to ask if we could turn the TV off before we got started. She was in a wheelchair. And I said, let's turn the TV off for a few minutes. And we did the wedding. And it was amazing. Now, here's what happened just a few weeks ago. Because of this long-term relationship, Pam was invited over with her mom to go to George and Joanne's house for dinner. When they got there, George and Joanne were full of questions. They said, hey, what if we ever wanted to come to your church? Do we have to believe what you believe? My wife said, no, it's okay. You can just come and check it out and explore it with us. You know, we'll explore it with you. It'll be great. And then they gave this question. What if you were to try to tell us what you believe or convince us about it, what would you say? I said to my wife, I hope you drove a truck through that one. That was an invitation, right, for evangelism right there. And Pam said, no, I just gently talked about what I believed and why I believed it. And I love this. Because of the compelling lives and seeing these people, they're asking us to share the gospel with them. It's just a conversation. It's simple. Right? We don't have to go accost them, knock on their door, beat their door down with weird tracks and stuff. We don't do all that stuff. Just be normal. Now, Karen, I'm going to really mess you up here, but can you go back to that art slide? Thank you. So these are the lost arts. And we believe that we can teach the people of Elmer's Christian Reformed Church to live these out. We believe that noticing counts in evangelism. That you can pray behind people's backs. You can just make a list of your neighbors and start praying behind their backs. They don't have to even know you're praying for them. Isn't that kind of cool? We believe you can even listen to people and that listening to them will actually, I don't know, make them feel valued. And by the way, introverts, which most of you are, you know, I'm not trying to make you like me. I know I'm a little wacky. It's okay. Introverts, guess what? Those first three steps, you don't have to say a word. You just have to look with your eyes, pray behind people's backs, and use your ears. Right? So you can participate in this. Over the next eight weeks, we're going to try to teach our congregation these basic skills. We believe this is the way Jesus acted when he walked on earth carrying out the mission that God sent him to do. Okay? Why are we doing this? Well, because coming to Chicago in January and February of 2019, there's a spiritual awareness campaign called Explore God Chicago. My previous job a year ago was to be recruiting churches for this initiative. And then I came to Elmer's church and the elders here had already voted to do this as a congregation. So we're going to participate. So Explore God Chicago is a spiritual awareness campaign where churches preach 
seven sermons on the seven big questions that non-Christians have about God, and we form spiritual conversation groups with primarily non-Christians in the groups. The goal is to enter into spiritual conversations with people that believe differently than we do. Okay? This has happened already in three other cities. In closing this morning, I want to show you a video from the city of Austin, Texas, what happened there. So check it out. Tell us basically your experiences this week. Has, has Explore God gone for you? We have 350 churches in Austin that today are unified in the same message, the same sermon series, the same focus of mobilizing our people, and it is unbelievable. I mean, we're going back to where it all began. This is what we went to seminary to do, uh, to have spiritual conversations, to trust that God will use simple conversations to transform hearts and lives. You can tell that People are inquisitive. People are looking uh, for answers. People are asking these questions. Why were we put here? I think everyone wants to know, why were we put here? Why are we on earth? I'd like to think that God is real. What is my life supposed to look like? What am I supposed to do with my talents and my gifts? And how am I supposed to be a part of this big, huge world with 7 billion people? Do I have any role to play in that? That's the question people are asking. Now, I don't mean in the room, but why are you taking up space on the planet? What is your purpose? This should not be a seven-week campaign. This should be part of our lives. Welcome to history. Hundreds of Central Texas churches are teaming up to get you to explore God. Explore God is open not only to all Christian denominations that wish to take part, but to people of other faiths and non-believers. What a great time in a really open city to be talking about such provocative topics. So won't it be awesome for the church of Jesus to come together around the central reason why we exist, the gospel of Jesus. Put away all of our differences and just bring to the world this amazing message, right, that you can be reconciled to your God. Now, Pastor Greg, last week talked about doing something. So this week, I have a couple challenges for you. First of all, I'm looking for discussion leaders for these groups. We're going to try to form 25 discussion groups where we have Christians facilitating them, outnumbered by non-Christians. That's our goal. I've already got people that have signed up and are ready to go. I will train you how to do this group. The training will be late October, early November. Remember, these groups launch in January and February in correspondence with this sermon series we're going to preach here. So I'm looking for people. If the Holy Spirit's speaking to you, whether you're afraid or not, and if you come ask me questions, it doesn't mean I'm gonna you know, write your name down and it costs you. It's okay, right? So you can come ask me questions. We can talk about it. Secondly, I want you to be thinking about this. Who is the one person this week that God has put in front of you that you're supposed to notice with your eyes and possibly engage with in some way? Think about that. And then have the courage to step out and do it. Because God's put people in front of all of us, right? Who do we need to step out and engage with this week, okay? All right. You'll hear more about this in the coming weeks. We'll keep pounding away and hoping to see uh, 159 Christians in conversation with up to 25 to 50 of our own people at Elmer's Church 
in January, February 2019. That'll be exciting. It'll be exciting. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Lord, um, mobilize us, Lord. Um, move us, Lord. Help us to feel personally responsible for what it is you'd have us to do. On your mission. In your name we pray. Amen.